All right, everyone, I want to thank you guys for joining our online service. I'm going to apologize about the stuff with the building, but amen, things like that happen. So today, if, uh, if you could bow your heads with me, I'll open up with prayer, and then we'll go into our sermon. God, thank you so much for this time, Lord, that even when we don't have a building, we still find ways to connect with you and to have our life with you, Lord, and just really get to love you, God. I ask that you would just still bless this sermon, that you would bless this message, and allow us to connect deeper with you, God. I thank you so much for this sunny day that we're able to be outside and still record this sermon, Lord. I ask that you would just continue to bless us and allow us to have a great, amazing Christmas morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. 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 So today my lesson is going to be called The Road to Heaven. Um, and now I'll hopefully be able to put up some slides so you guys can see, but I'll be using my computer for that. Um, so today, again, The Road to Heaven. So the reason I wanted to talk about this is recently in our campus we've been talking about um, different ways and paths to a miracle. And one of the things we talked about was following God's lead. And we were talking and sharing last Tuesday about what that means to follow God's lead. And so I wanted to do a sermon on that because I think the road to heaven can sometimes be a, a windy back alley through the woods that ends up in El Dorado. And so it can be kind of confusing and it can be kind of fun, but it's something that I think we really should try to focus on. And so if you could turn with me to Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, I want to start in a confusing place because I think the road can sometimes be a confusing journey. So, in catch you up with where we're at in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, is we're joining the Israelites as they're in the wilderness. And now the Israelites had already gone to the promised land and chosen not to go in, and now they're going to wander in the wilderness for a while. And so they're in the wilderness, and now they're about to complain to Moses. They tend to do this a lot, but this is a very interesting situation here. So again, in Numbers 21, verse 4, it says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses, and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food, and there is no water, and we detest the miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to that the Lord take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And so I've always been somewhat confused by this passage. It's uh, always something I found very interesting. It's kind of opposite to what I expect from God almost in this moment. He is... If you recall the Israelites earlier when they first went into the wilderness and Moses went up to the mountain, they made a golden calf and God was very mad at them for making a golden calf and praying to him as idol worship. But here in this situation when there's venomous snakes, the solution is to put a bronze snake on a pole and anyone who looks at it lives. It's almost opposite of what you would expect in this moment and so I think it's very interesting and I never truly understood it for a long time. So I'm going to kind of get to the explanation, but before I do, I want you to notice something at the very beginning. It says the people grew impatient on the way. And that is one of the quickest problems with God's plan, is God's plan will never take you the direction you want to go when you want to get there. It's almost always a long, patient journey. But as people, we grow impatient on the way. And then we start to complain sometimes, we start to get bitter, we start to deviate from the plan because we think we know better. And so because of their impatience, they lead themselves into a bad situation. And what do we do as Christians whenever we hit a bad situation? We're like, I'm suddenly super spiritual. And we turn around, we're like, I want God again. And so they do that and they're like, we sinned. 
help us, Moses, pray for us, we're screwed. And so Moses comes back, and I can't imagine that prayer with Moses has with God. He's like, you want me to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole? Isn't that just what like we did wrong a couple weeks ago? Like, this doesn't make any sense. But what's really cool, if you actually look up a picture of what this might have looked like, they'll actually show you the bronze snake was most likely draped on a pole that had a cross beam. Now, if you can imagine a pole with a cross beam towards the top, it might look very familiar to you. It looks a lot like a cross. And again, if you look at the last part of verse 9, it says that when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Mm. And if that doesn't sound familiar to you of believing in God and seeing Jesus and living. And so I want you to turn to another passage, and this is much more clearly explained in John chapter 3, verse 10. And Jesus is here and he's talking to the Pharisees in this part of the Bible. And he's talking to them about things of the world and they're confused. And this is what he says to them. He says, You are Israel's teachers, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of things we, that what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. And here is the cool thing about this. I love how he starts with, do you not understand these things? If you kind of think about it, it's kind of unreasonable to almost expect them to understand that. Think about the Israelites who were there in the wilderness thousands of years before this interaction. They had no idea that this bronze snake was going to be a prequel to the Messiah. They had no idea that this was a connection Jesus would make years and years later. They only just saw their immediate moment. They only had a moment where they had to learn to have faith in God. They had no idea that it was going to connect all the way to the Messiah. That wasn't even on their radar. So when Jesus says you don't understand these things, it's true. We really do not understand the plan of God. It makes no sense to us because things from thousands of years ago connect to things today. It's such a cool experience. And I love how it ends is with just as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And it's crazy because once you see both ends of the story, the story makes sense. You're like, oh, of course it had to be that way because we see it this way. But when you're in the moment, none of that makes sense. Even this line where Jesus says directly, the Son of Man must be lifted up so everyone can believe in Him and be saved and have eternal life, didn't make any sense to the people who heard it at the time. The disciples didn't understand that Jesus would have to die. And so here's the cool thing about it. Um, I have a picture, but obviously, again, we're online. Um, it's a picture of looking down a street. So I want to imagine you're on your hometown street, and you're looking down your street. You can see in front of you, and you can see behind you. Now I want to imagine you're at the top of one of the mountains here in Camarillo. And you can see over all of Camarillo. You can see all the streets, all the ways they interconnect. And so what I want you to understand is our viewpoint, especially of our own lives, is like us on that street. We can see a little bit of behind us, and we can see a little bit before us. You can't even remember every memory of things you've experienced. You can only remember things that are somewhat present to you. And you can't see everything you'll do. You might know, hey, I'm going to go to work on Monday, but you have no idea where you're going to be in 20 years. And so in the same way, we only have a limited perspective of our life. But when God looks at our lives, he sees all the interconnected streets. And not just the interconnected streets of your own life, he sees that of every other last person. He sees where they cross and where they deviate. He sees the shortcuts and he sees the long journeys. He sees the danger and he sees the paved roads. And so God is up here 
the man on the high tower and he's guiding us. Hey, take this road, don't take that one, go here. And we're on our one little street. And yet sometimes we're on our one little street and we're like, I know where I wanna be, I wanna be there. I'm gonna take this turn. But we have no idea that that's a dead end. We have no idea what lays for us in that back alley. And so God, he tries to guide us to the places that we need to be. And a perfect description of this is in Acts chapter 17, verse 27. It's a, a message that Paul was preaching, and it says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And so the way God deviates our plans is in such a way so that everyone might have an opportunity to know him, that we might reach out for him, though he's not far from any one of us. I have personally experienced this. You know, for me, growing up, I loved football. My dad loves football. He has every single football helmet that's ever been made up in our room. And I've seen every single one. I've watched football since as long as I have memories. I can't tell you the first time I held a football. I've been doing that my whole life. But as growing up, my dad had me and my brother play flag football because he didn't want us to get injured. And so we finally convinced my dad in middle school to let us join a tackle team. And so I was in sixth grade and my brother was in eighth grade. So we were supposed to be on two completely different teams. Well, the team I was supposed to be on was uh, I was over the weight limit by two pounds. So they bumped me up one year more. And on that team, the team was overflown with people, so they bumped me up two years. So I actually ended up on my brother's team. And on my brother's team, we met a guy named Dylan Timothy Snow. And that guy, who would later be the guy, we built a great close friendship, me and my brother, with him because we were on that same football team. And he was the guy who would later reach out to me. And so something as small as my love for football and being two pounds overweight and a team being full led to my own salvation. And that's not a path I could have seen my own self, definitely not at that age. And that's not roads I would have chosen to take. I would have much preferred to play people my own size. When I played them, I was like this tall and like 40 pounds, like not good scenario, but it led to where I needed to be. In the same way, God sometimes takes us on paths that don't seem like where we want to be or don't make sense to us but they give us opportunities to impact our own lives and impact other people's lives. And so the idea is not to know the path, it's to follow the path. And so I want us to turn to another story that I think is a great example of this. And this is earlier, it's in Numbers chapter 14. We're gonna be down in verse six. And so this is before that situation with the bronze snake. This is when the Israelites finally make it to the promised land. Moses has and them send in spies into the land to see if the land is fruitful, if it's easily defended, if it's going to be hard to take. And so they send in spies. But the spies report that, yes, the land is really beautiful and really amazing and it has all these good things. But these other spies, they give a bad report saying that the people there are way too powerful, that will die, will get killed. It's not worth going. We should go back to Egypt. And so right here, after that report, this is what happens in verse 6. It says, Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephna, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So Joshua and Caleb, they're the only ones who stay true to it. It's like, hey, I know this looks scary, but God is with us. It's not a problem. We're going to do it. But the rest of Israel is terrified, and they choose not to go. And so if you go down to verse 23, this is what God says. He says, not one of them 
will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit. And so here's the cool thing. So what basically happens is no one who is alive at this time will see the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb because they are faithful in this moment. And the way this ends up working is Israel wanders the desert for 40 years so that that generation dies off. Not even Moses gets to go into the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb because they stayed true to God. I love that verse where he says that they followed me wholeheartedly. And he says that they will inherit it. And so what's really cool is if you turn over to Joshua in chapter 14, verse 7, it says, I, and this is uh, Caleb speaking at the time. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought back to him a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites went with me and made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses. While Israel moved about in the wilderness, so here I am today, 85 years old. Now I want you to imagine for a second the experience Caleb might have had. He had faith to follow God, and God gave him a promise. Now that promise took 45 years to be fulfilled. For me, I can't even comprehend that number because I haven't even been alive for 45 years. In fact, I could double my lifetime and still not have waited that long. I get impatient when I wait for things for three days from Amazon. <laughs> but here we are. Caleb stays true to God wholeheartedly for 45 years because he trusts the plan. Now, I want you to ask yourself, if you had a promise from God that had an open-ended timetable and you were in your 43rd year, do you think you might still have faith? Do you think he might bow out a bit? Especially when it doesn't go your way. I'm sure he wanted that promised land the day he gave a good report. But God said, no, trust me, wait 45 years, it'll be worth it. Caleb didn't get to see the fruit of his labor until he was 85. You know, sometimes we can be impatient with people. We're like, I put all this time and effort into you, and I see you receive nothing back. Sometimes you don't see that fruit for 45 years. You know, one of the coolest experiences I had as a disciple was working in the teen ministry. If you know anything about teenagers, they're very selfish, <laughs> myself included. And I've done some, I've had relationships where I've done nothing but put time into them. And I received some friendship or some things back, but it was mainly service. But what was really cool is later in life, I had those same people come back to me and years later and totally forget about those kind of interactions. They said, hey, you really had impact on me. And because of that, I'd be able to get where I am. And I thought those moments were so worth it. It made every last moment worth it. It's really cool. Even Ryan Swan, who's here today, was yeah. awesome came to self, set up. I remember when we were in the team ministry, I would drive an hour out of my way to do studies out of this house. And we'd hang out and have fun and do all this kind of stuff. And at the time, he wasn't in a place where he could give much back. But now Ryan Swan is one of the relationships who gives the most and I can trust him every time yeah, to right. come through. Even here today when we're not having a service, him and his dad are here to settle. And so I really appreciate that heart. And I really loved getting to see that fruit. I didn't have to wait 45 years for that. I had to wait maybe one or two. 
but it's really cool to get to see something happen in that way. But sometimes it takes us trying to trust God in times when we can't necessarily see it, but we know that there is a promise. And the other thing I want to take away from this story is when we choose not to follow God's plan, like the Israelites did here, all that happens is it's like a Google Maps. When you make a wrong turn, it just recalculates. There's still a path back to God. These Israelites, Israel did make the wrong choice, but they wouldn't withhold God's plan from having to fulfillment. It just delayed it 40 years. Just in the same way you make a wrong turn, you're adding a couple minutes. In the same way in our lives, sometimes we make the wrong decision. Sometimes we go down the wrong path. Sometimes we see the rainbow a little too early and take a shortcut. And you know what? God's patient with us. He doesn't force us onto his plan. He says, you know what? I'll be here when you want to come back. That's okay. It has costs. It requires something of us. But there's still the path back. Regardless of the decision you make. And so there's one last thing I want to say about God's plan. And it's in Job chapter 38. And I love the story of Job. If you've never read the story of Job, please, please take the time to read through it now. But the story of Job is a hilarious beginning in my opinion. Because the first chapter of Job, you have God who's sitting in his high council chamber and Satan wanders in. I don't know what this interaction looks like, but basically God's like, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. Uh, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan's like, well, yeah, I've seen Job. And for those of you who don't know, Job was an upstanding citizen in his time. He was a leader. He was very wealthy. He had a good family. He was very well-liked. Pretty much everything you could want from life, he had it. And he was a great man of God. And so Satan's like, well, yeah, Job's a great man, but he wouldn't love you if he didn't have all these great things. And God's like, all right, bet. Take him away. Let's see what he does. So they basically kind of make a bet. And so he says, you can do anything you want to Job. You just can't kill him. Satan's like, okay. And so in all in one day, he tears down his wealth, tears down his reputation, tears down his physical health, kills his family, and basically he's like, all right, what are you going to do, Job? And even Job's own wife tells him to abandon God. And so it's a pretty bad time for Job. And when Job's friends come to him, who are supposed to comfort him, they all come and basically blame him for his own problems. They say that he must have had some secret sin, or there's some reason for this to happen, and it's kind of your fault, so you should repent. And Job's like, I did nothing wrong. But what's interesting is, once you get further into Job, Job starts to get a little bitter with God. And I can imagine why. I imagine if that would have a bad day, I might, might be a little hurt by God. And so he tends to make these accusations toward God. He's like, God, come to me. I want to have a conversation with you, and I want you to lay your accusations at my feet and tell me why this happened. He basically says, hey, I know I'm blameless, so tell me why you did this to me. And so what happens in Job 38 verse 1 is God answers. And so a big storm is on the horizon. He's sitting with his friends, and this is what happens in Job 38 verse 1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And this goes on for a full length chapter here of God just talking about all the things that Job could never possibly understand. But before I get into that, I want you to look at this thing that God says to him. He says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? What an interesting sentence right there. Right there that describes perfectly the comparison of man and God. God has a plan here. God is saying, hey, I'm trying to show you that you can love me without all these things. 
God's saying, hey, this story that you're experiencing right now, you have no idea why I'm doing this. In fact, you have no idea that thousands of years later that Logan Mark Poppick at a park is going <laughs> to preach a sermon on it because of your experience. And all the other things that are going to come, how many other people are going to connect to the story of Job and be helped by it? But Job can only see what he is experiencing in the moment. He has no idea how much of an impact this is going to have on the entire world. And so God says, who are you to obscure my plan with words without knowledge? Because in comparison to God's knowledge, we have no knowledge. We like to think we're smart. We like to think we know what we're doing. And we like to make plans. But at the end of the day, we have no idea. We're following blindly. And I love what he says after that sentence. He says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer I'm telling you one thing, if I saw a storm and God spoke out of the storm and he told me to brace myself like a man and I will question you, I'd be terrified. The pee would already be down my leg. There's no way I'm still confident at this moment because this is who God is. I love that the Bible says there's a healthy fear of the Lord because this is what it means. Right here, that sentence is, hey, and I'm going to make you answer these questions. I'm going to really see and have this trial. You said you wanted to have this accusation with me, let's have this talk. And he talks about the things that we cannot understand. How he laid the earth's foundation. How he marked off its dimensions. And later talks about the Leviathan and all these other crazy things that God does that we can never understand. And at the end, in Job 42, verse 1, it says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand things too wonderful for me to know. And if you skip down to verse 10, it says, After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. So I love how he says in verse 2, No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And I guess that goes back to that recalculating thing, is you can never undo God's plan. And that's the interesting thing about God's plan, is that God's plan does not require your participation but he desires it. The question is not whether God's plan will still work, whether it will still have fruition, or whether or not you can stop it, hinder it, or expand it. It's a question of, will you be a part of it? That's what the church is supposed to be. Is, is us supposed to be part of God's plan? God does not need teammates, but he likes teammates. He doesn't need to work through you, but he would like to work through you. You cannot thwart God's plan, but you can be a part of it. And it's a much, much more amazing thing to be on that path with God than to watch it from the side. So I love that line. I love at the end when he says, Surely I spoke a thing I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. I love that about Job because Job is going through the most terrible time of his life. And probably more terrible of a time than any of us could ever experience. But at the end he says, Things too wonderful for me to know. How crazy of a change is that, of perspective? For going from your most terrible experience to thinking of it as a most wonderful thing that you can't even truly comprehend. That's what it means to follow God. What it means to follow God is when you walk through those valleys that it is a time of wonder. Because you have no idea what God is doing in those moments. You have no idea the impact it will have on people. You know, it was funny. I was sharing one time uh, a hardship I was going through and uh, I had a friend who was going through a very similar hardship and 
I was he was funny because he was telling me how much he was hurting. And I was like, you know, I was telling him at the time, I was like, you don't believe me right now, but I guarantee you that this will be one of the best years of your life. And he was like, I have no idea how that makes any sense. And I was like, I'm telling you, when you go through these kind of pains, they define who you are as a person. And they allow you to have impact on other people in this moment that we're having right now. And you will look back on this and say, this is part of what made me who I am, and I'm happy to be here. And so these are truly things that are too wonderful to know, because when you're in that moment, it feels like all hell is breaking loose. Mm-hmm. But afterwards, when you can see the bookend, you're like, oh my gosh, that was the plan. That was where I was supposed to be. That's how it was supposed to happen. But hindsight is always 2020. So it's in those times when you're in the storm where we just have to learn to trust the shepherd. And I love this in verse 10. It says, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. Job had a lot. I guarantee you that Job, in the beginning of this story that had nothing of this happened to him yet, couldn't have even imagined what it would mean to have twice as much as he had back then. Think about his wealth was restored twice as much. He gets a new family, which is restored. And even more than that, think about his honor and reputation, which was dragged through the mud. Think about how much more his honor and reputation is higher now that he is immortalized in Scripture. That's crazy to think that God restored him in such a way that he could never imagine that people thousands of years later would know his name. I would never imagine. In the same way, when we go through these things, we have no idea what God is doing and the place will end up. But it is greater than any place we have ever been. And so, I want to end with a visual. There's a, a, lo- a little visual that I was shown one time a couple years ago that really, really helped me. But it's a picture of a child and she's holding a little teddy bear. And she loves it and she's holding it tight. And there's Jesus, and he's on a knee in front of the kid, and behind his back he's got the biggest teddy bear you could imagine, right? And he says, trust me, as he asks the little girl to give him the teddy bear. The little girl's saying, but I love it. And that is what happens with us in our own life. We, we hold on to this plan or this idea of what we want. For some of us it's money, for some of us it's a family, for some of us it's a place to live, some of us it's a career, maybe it's a grade. Whatever it might be, we hold on tightly to our dream, our passion, our desire, and we're like, this is what I want, God. Please make this happen. Bless this. And God's like, hey, I'm asking you to hand that back to me. I'm asking you to let go of that, to just trust me with it. And let me give you something greater than what you think is the greatest. Because that is who God is. The things he asks us to give up, the things he asks us to submit, are for our own benefit. When we think we're taking the long way around, we're actually ending up somewhere we never intended but totally desired. I guarantee you, when I was playing football from the back then, I had no idea or no desire to be somebody preaching a sermon. But I'm glad I'm here. Back when I was going through rough times and younger ages, I had no desire to be there, but I'm glad I did because it helped me to be the man I am and to help other people on their path. And so I continue to try, and I will continue to try, to let go of the small teddy bears and allow God to give me the big one. In the same way in life, I ask you to trust God's plan, to be willing to follow it, to be willing to submit to it, and be willing to wait and be patient. Just like Caleb, sometimes the greatest miracles take over 45 years to see, are we patient enough to follow? So with that, I'm gonna pray for us as we take communion. God, I just want to say thank you so much, Lord, that you have a plan for us. God, thank you so much that all we have to do is submit to your wisdom. 
Lord, that all we have to do is follow the path blindly, God. I thank you that I am not in the driver's seat, or I would crash a lot. God, I thank you that even when I take the wrong turns, you recalculate me back to you, God. I thank you that you do not need me to have your plan come to fruition, but you want me, Lord. And so I thank you so much for everything you choose to be and everything you have done with me and through me. And I ask that you do the same for the people here today, God. I ask that you would bless this time, Lord, that we would remember your sacrifice and the reason that we are here today, God. As we take communion, we would remember that you were lifted high just as the bronze snake was lifted high, God. That you are our path to salvation, Lord, and that it is the only path worth walking, God. So I thank you so much for this time. It's in your name I pray. Thank you.